God is the one who gives those who mourn in Zion a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of despair. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That He may be glorified. Beauty for ashes. God is skilled at, at, at making beauty from ashes. This is, this is His work. This is what He excels at. That's where our attention has been and, and, our, and the focus of our study through the book of Ruth and the story of Ruth. And so if you're joining us today and, and you're a guest with us, we're in chapter 2, Ruth chapter 2 this morning. And, um, and the first chapter of Ruth was all about the ashes of tragedy. It was, it was, we saw one dark and frowning providence after another. There was the unstable and evil social and political climate in the period of the judges. There was famine that came and the poverty that came with that and hunger. There was sinful choices and consequences of those choices. There was death of a spouse, of children. There was extreme poverty. And so by the end of chapter one, we're, we're left with uh, these two Absolutely destitute widows. One of them is older, one of them is younger, and they're, they're making this journey from pagan Moab to Bethlehem in Judah. After hearing that God has visited His people and giving them bread. So God has shown His goodness in the promised land again. And so these ladies, who the Naomi had left because of the famine, now she's coming back and she has Ruth with her. So look at verse 19 of chapter 1 with me. Let's just pick that back up and, and we'll, we'll continue on. Verse 19, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? For the, she, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara. Which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so it's, it's there in, in Bethlehem of Judah that we're going to see God take these, these human ash piles and make something breathtakingly beautiful out of them. This is what he's going to do. But, but hear me, I didn't just say a few seconds ago, God, God was skilled at making beauty from ashes. But present tense, God is skilled. At, at, he's, a, he's a skilled craftsman at making something incredibly beautiful out of something that's incredibly tragic. This is, this is God. This is our God today. No matter what dark and frowning providences have laid you low this morning and that you come in under today, no, no, no matter how bitter you feel about the Lord's dealings in your life and the circumstances that you're in, God is still just as active. He is still just as able to, to make beauty from your ashes. And we all have them. And we'll see this morning, it's God who's doing the work. As, as we see this change begin to unfold for, for Naomi and Ruth, it's not, it's not about good fortune. They didn't just catch a break. It's not that they, that they just happen to come into good luck. That's not it at all. It, it, the turnaround in their lives isn't because of some kind of impersonal chance or fortune. It's because of a very, very personal divine providence. 
This is God's doing. God, like a skilled artist, he takes these shattered and broken pieces of lives and he, and he puts them together carefully into this beautiful mosaic. This is what our God does. He's very good at it. And he's doing it even today as we're sitting here. So the second, the second chapter of Ruth, it, it allows us to see this story of God's redemptive plan and, and to see it in, in split screen. You know about split screen and, 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 and on the slide you, you see a split screen image. And so split screen in this case is a little Google image. This is our church right here. So you have, you have the street view. And, and so that's what you see if you were standing in front of the church. That's how it looks. That's how it feels to us. But then you can, you can back out and you can see a map and you can see perspective and get a sense of where this place actually is. And, and so you get two different perspectives with a split screen. And, and so in, in, in a, in a story or something like that, often you, you get the character's perspective and how things seem to appear to them. And then you get the writer's perspective and what's really going on behind the scenes and how this fits in a larger story and where things are headed. And, and so, so we see that. We, we have, uh, we have some new technologies, a new projector here that was just mounted this week, and now we have our old one that's on the back wall, so now I can see what's behind me. This is something we've needed for a long time. If you're at a missions conference, you understand why. And so we're not having to constantly do this and, and point back, and, 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 and so this is part of our Vision 2020 efforts to improve audio-visual uh, quality and and there are going to be some kinks to work out over the next few weeks so bear with us and and we're we're trying to figure the technology out here and there's a, there's several changes that come with that but pretty soon what I'm going to be able to do is I'm going to be able to see a lot more than you can see because I'm going to have a clock a big clock back there it's not that we don't have the software the program running yet I'm going to see what the next slide is so I can see what's coming and and, and I, so I can see where we're heading. I, they can give me little messages and say, hey, Van's falling asleep, you know, so I can use them in an illustration, wake him up and, and, and that kind of stuff. So, so there will be some, some neat things, but I can see both what's behind me, what you're seeing presently, but I also can see what's coming. And, and this is, this is what split screen. So the writer of Ruth, she shows us the way things seem to be and, and, and how it looks from human perspective. And then he also shows where, where they're headed. What's really going on? What's coming? He shows the human and the divine perspectives. Events that seem to be accidental, seem to be happenstance and just good fortune and good luck. But in reality, we see God is orchestrating the whole thing. And He's working and He's moving and He has this, this plan that's being carried out by the sovereign hand of God. So we get to see this in split screen. We have the benefit of that looking in this story of, of with Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. But, you know, we don't have that benefit in our lives, do we? I mean, I do not know what the secret counsels of God are. We talked about this last week. I don't, I don't know how everything, I know that everything in my life is working out for my good and for His glory. But I don't know how. I can't interpret all of the situations and circumstances of my life. God hasn't given me that ability. Sometimes things seem chaotic and it seems to not make any sense. But I can be certain that God is. There is another screen. God is working. He has a plan that He's, he's fulfilling and He's accomplishing. No matter how painful my current situation is, I can be confident that the Lord is working. He has a plan and it's plans for welfare, not for evil. Plans to give us a future and to, to give us hope. And so, from Ruth's point of view, and ours, things just happen. And we'll see that. But from God's perspective, nothing just happens. 
Nothing just happens. Not even a sparrow, not even one of those little sparrows is going to, Matthew, Jesus says, will fall to the ground apart from the, the knowledge, the interest, the authority, the will of our Father. Nothing happens apart from His will. And so, if we could see the, if we could see the split screen of our lives, what we'd see is how our little lives, and our little situations, and our little circumstances, and our little decisions, all of those things fit into this, this grand redemptive drama that God is working out. The same, the same story that we're reading about, this little slice of the story we're reading about in Ruth and God fulfilling His purposes and, and accomplishing this story is the same story that you and I are involved in today. It's still moving. It's still going. Christ will return until He does. It's, we're still part of this story. And, and so we see the, the power of these small things, the power of small, these and we see this in Ruth too, because of the split screen. We see very small means, very small moments, and they have this disproportionately large end and purpose. And so we we have a whole chapter to go through this morning. And so we're gonna get us we'll do as best we can. You know, one of the things that I could put on the screen later is a countdown clock, which would make some of you very happy. So you don't ever you're never late to coffee and cookies and stuff, but uh, we'll see about that one. Uh, you better be nice. Um, so we have a whole chapter to go through, and I, I'm going to do it differently today. I want us, because it's a story, it's a narrative, I want us to just kind of read through the story and work through it and see, what, see what's there, and then my hope is we have time to make some specific application at the end uh, for us. So let's get into it. Verse 22 of chapter 1, let's just pick it up there. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Naomi went out in famine with her family. She comes back, it's harvest. You can see the change. The clouds are still dark, still scary, they're still ominous. But off on the horizon, there's this little ray of, of sunlight. There's, there's a slither of hope off in the distance. And that's, that's what the little note there, that it was the barley harvest, the beginning of the barley harvest. There's, there's hope. And, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, God will make beauty from the ashes of these lives. So the first, first movement in the story, we'll see three as we walk through this chapter. First thing is a lucky run-in. And you've got to put quotes around lucky, or you're going to miss the whole point. Because uh, it really wasn't luck at all. But again, we're looking at a split screen. From, from a human perspective, it seems like luck. So verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So we're introduced to this guy, Boaz. He's going to be a key player for the rest of the book. So, so he, he makes an, a, he's introduced here, but his appearance doesn't come till later. And, and that'll, that'll be significant. And so his name is Boaz. His name means in him is strength. That's a lot better than the names of the guys we saw in chapter 1, sickly and wasting away. So this gives a little more hope here. Um, but he's some kind of relative of Elimelech, of Naomi's deceased husband. And so later we'll learn he's not just a relative, but he's a very close relative. And in fact, he is a, we'll, we'll, we'll come to this word in a little bit, a goel, a, a kinsman redeemer. And so, but right here, it's just common word for relative, friend. He's a worthy man, the text says. He was respected, influential in the community. And again, this is, this is information. We get split screen here. We get information that Ruth and Naomi don't really have yet. 
And so we get to see this, but it's completely unknown to, to, to Ruth. When the day begins, Ruth has never heard the name Boaz. This guy means absolutely nothing to her. This is not some blind date that she's being set up on here. This is not a strategic, strategized by humans. This is, this is planned and orchestrated by God. But the writer is just, again, he's given us a split screen and we're left anticipating. Verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Whoever that may be, if hopefully I can find favor in some farmer's sight and I can glean there. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she's called, notice, I just this is a little side note, but it's important, I think. She's called the Moabite, and she has been so far. And, and she will be throughout this chapter. This is a subtle racial reference here. Ruth the Moabite. This is emphatic here. And, and, and it probably indicates that her race, her ethnicity, was a factor in Bethlehem. That she's an outsider. She's a foreigner. She, she's, she's, she's from out there. She's probably reminded of that often in that community. I, I just, the Flintoffs and Senegal, I know Eric's shared this, but as, 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 as he was live, they were living over there for several years, he would be called a two-bob, basically a white guy. Everywhere he went, two-bob, two-bob. That's how he was known. It was always a reminder, I am outside, I don't fit, I don't belong, I'm always that guy. And so this is, this is, this is that. It's this constant reminder that she doesn't fit in. And so early in the story, that, that her identity as a Moabite is going to be significant. It's emphasized. That's your identity. You're the Moabite. The Moabite woman. That's who she is. Not Ruth. The Moabite woman. And that all changes, though, after she's redeemed by Boaz. We're going to see this transition unfold. That, that, that then what matters, not as the fact that she was a Moabite, what matters then will be her connection to David. She's going to become the great-grandmother to King David. Now, I, I, I was thinking about this week, and, and in an even greater way, for you and me, God's redemption of us, um, because of God's redemption of us, our, our identity is not bound by our social status or our race, but it's in our connection to the Son of David. The greater David's greater Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's what gives us our identity now. Just as Ruth's identity was changed. That changes how we think about one another in God's community, in the church then doesn't it? We're not, we're not an ethnic community like Israel. We are a multi-ethnic community as, as the church. And this, was, this heartbeat of God is, is present even as this, this outsider Ruth is folded in to God's people. This is, one of, this is why one of our initiatives with our Vision 2020, our five-year plan, is, is related. One of the nine is related to multicultural, multi-ethnic diversity. We pray and, are, and are, we're praying and working to see this church more and more reflect the diversity of this community, not just ethnically, but in all ways. And, 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 we, and we want to see that, and that's a vision we need to get behind if we're going to have our priorities in line with God's priorities. And so... Side note over. All right, back on the main trail. But so she says, let, let me go glean. And see, the way that it's recorded, it's like she wastes no time. They get there. I got to get to work. This is the beginning of the barley harvest there. The time is ticking. So let me get out there. She shows courage. She shows initiative as this outsider, as this foreigner. 
And she goes out to glean. Now, how many of you have ever gleaned before? Okay, all right, all right. You've gleaned insights, maybe, something like that, but you've probably not gleaned barley. Um, you, you, you may have a version of this, but uh, gleaning is this provision that God made for the poor in the Mosaic Law. And so the law was basically something like this. The reapers, the, the harvesters, the reapers, they could make only one pass through a field. They couldn't go back and pick it clean and get every piece of grain out of there. They just make one pass and whatever's, whatever's left, the poor could come behind and could glean, could, could take the rest and gather what was left by the reapers on the first pass. So a couple of verses and these will be on the screen. In Leviticus 23:22, just to get a sense of this. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So Ruth fits. She is poor. She is a sojourner. Deuteronomy 24:19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And Ruth, again, in a sense, is all three of those. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And so, this, this is gleaning. And the gleaning laws remind us two things. One, God owns the land. It's His land. He can make the rules for it. He's, he, it's, his, it's His land. It doesn't belong to the farmers. It belongs to the Lord. Secondly, God cares for the poor and the needy. He cares for the outcasts. He cares for the margins. He, his hesed, his covenant kindness, loving kindness is, extends to the lowliest in the community. And so the Israelite farmers, they're, they're means of God's, of, of, of provision for the poor, but the true, compassionate, gracious landowner is God Himself. That's what these laws remind us of. So, but again, the fact that Ruth is going out to glean in the fields, this is how she's going to survive, it shows how poor she was. I'm sure when Naomi grew up as a little girl in Bethlehem, she didn't think, one day when I grow up, I'm going to be a gleaner. No, this is, this is like collecting aluminum cans or something just to scrape by, just to get enough to, to eat, just to survive. Getting scraps. They're, they're desperate. They're destitute. So they're going out to glean in these fields. And don't picture some like Kansas wheat fields. If you've ever flown over Kansas or anything like that, and you see these large tracts of you know square land, everything's square in Kansas and eastern Colorado. It's just as boring from the ground, trust me. Um, but this is, not, this is not it at all. These are, this, is, this farmland in Israel was just a sprawling, disjointed, complex patchwork of little scraps of land. They used everything. They didn't, they didn't really have visible fences or boundaries because every little bit of land they wanted to use to farm. And so, so, so one farmer might have a series of little tracks that are not adjacent to one another. And so it's this, this complicated, you know, long-standing uh, little pieces of land and parcels of land that everybody, everybody had. And so, so the selection of property glean, is, it was left up to chance, as we would say. That'll be important. Verse 3. All right. So she set out and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she, here we go, split screen, happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. She just happened to stumble upon that particular field that day. As the, the text literally says something like this, as chance would chance, as luck would have it, we would say. 
Now the writer has got his tongue like pressed into the side of his cheek here. You know, he, he's using hyperbole. He's, he's exaggerating to make this point. He, and again, he's showing split screen, Ruth's perspective. From Ruth's perspective, it looks like she just stumbles upon it. We know God's perspective though, and, and that's what he's really wanting to emphasize. Accident? Just happened? I don't think so. And he's going to show us that that's clearly not the case. So, but, but what happened was a surprise to her. Not to God. And so he, he carefully guides her steps to the right place at the right time. And all the jumbled patchwork of, of, of farmland, she just happens to stumble upon this piece, walking by many other pieces that look just like it. But her luck doesn't stop there. Now just imagine the scene now as we get into verse 4. You, you have this, this farm agricultural scene, the beginning of harvest season. Remember, after a period of famine and drought, maybe a long period, many years of famine and drought, and now God has sent rain again, and there's crane, and, and just the joy in the atmosphere, the smell of that fresh grain, and the sounds of the harvester singing happy songs with, with, with the, 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 it's harvest time again. It's been so long. And then surprise. One coincidence, quote, follows another coincidence. Ruth is, is, is sure lucky. <laughs> Verse 4. And behold, that's the writer saying, check this out. Surprise. Get this. Boaz came from Bethlehem. Wouldn't you know it? <laughs> Just as Ruth showed up, Boaz showed up. Wow, how could that be? So the second movement in this story is this blossoming relationship. A blossoming relationship. Boy finally meets girl. Beauty begins to take shape here. The first words we hear out of Boaz's mouth in verse 4, they're a prayer, they're a benediction, a blessing in the name of the Lord. He, he goes out to inspect the progress of his harvest and as he comes up to the edge of the field, he sees his workers out there busy and singing and joy on their hearts and, and, he, and he calls out to them and he says, The Lord be with you! What a great, great thing to say. And, 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 he, and, he, and the Lord is with them. That's not just some mute, kind of uh, flippant, casual greeting. And God is answering that prayer right before as He's uttering it. Because God is at work. He is accomplishing the story of redemption right before, right in their midst with Ruth being present. So He says, The Lord be with you in your work. And the reapers return the greeting of their own. The Lord bless you! And God is answering that prayer. He's working to do just that. And, and what a great example. I do not have time to linger here, but as a Christian employer and employee in that relationship, and this is a beautiful picture of this respect and humility and blessing and caring for the souls of your workers and, and, and caring for the well-being of those you work for. And Anyway, you'll just have to run with that one yourself. Alright, well, barring the discovery of something unusual, what would normally happen is boys would simply check on the progress, encourage his workers, go on his way, probably had other fields to go and inspect, but something caught his eye. Or someone caught his eye. And, and we don't know exactly what it was about Ruth that caught his eye, but something did. Verse 5, Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? He's like a middle school boy, isn't he? He don't want to talk to her. He goes to his friend and says, Who's that? 
No, and, and, he, and he's asking his question very gently here. He, it sounds kind of, who's, who's, who is that? Whose is that? Like it's possession, property. But he, what he's saying is he's assuming she's attached to somebody. She's dependent on somebody, either a, her husband or her father, and maybe as a landowner in the community. Verse 6, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So he gives this surprisingly long answer. He just says, who's, who's, whose woman is that? And he doesn't just say, ah, she's Naomi's. No, he gives this long response and says she's a young Moabite woman. Again, her race is emphasized. She, her status is a foreigner. She's the one who returned from with Naomi from Moab. That was the talk of the town. Remember, the city was stirred up because of this. He reports what she said. She's, she asks, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Now, she doesn't need permission to glean. That was already Provision was already made in God's law. But she, she's showing humility. She presumes nothing. And then she, he says that she's been there all day. She has patience and determination. She will provide for Naomi. And, and so this report does a couple of things. One, it, it links the woman who caught Boaz's eye with the woman that he's heard about. He's already heard of her reputation. So this is making a connection for Boaz. Ah, that's the one. And then two, it's, it's showing her admirable character. This is, this is, she's a true model, a model of true devotion. Young men, young women, this is what's most important in, in dating and in pursuing uh, uh, male or female. It's, it's character. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. A woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. That's, that's, that's where our focus needs to be. So this made her attractive to Boaz. She's a worthy, noble woman. We'll see more of that in a moment. But now comes the moment of truth. So, chance using the split screen, Providence, has brought them together. They're in the same geographic location. They're close to one another. They haven't talked yet. So how, is, how, is, how will this all play out? Is he going to be kind to her? Is he going to be cruel? Will he be generous or will he be stingy? Verse 8, And Boaz said to Ruth, personally now, gets his courage up. That's hard, isn't it, guys? <laughs> it's been a long time, but I, I remember. It was hard. Now listen, my daughter, and when he refers to her as his daughter, it's probably showing a, maybe a significant age gap here. He's older than she is. And dresses her as he's speaking to a daughter almost. And, and, and then he goes out of his way to offer to her tremendous help. And look at the things she does. First thing he says, he gives her a permanent place to work. He says, do not glean, verse 8, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. She, he, he, he formally authorizes her to remain in this field, glean wherever she wants. But it gets better. He gives her also an elevated status. Verse 8, But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Stick, stick close to the other women. Those are paid workers, those women. And so she, she was to work with them, but, but just behind them. She wasn't an employee yet. She wasn't on the payroll, but she was just about as close as she could be. She's like the most favored gleaner of, the, of all the gleaners out there in the field. And this would do a couple of things. It would protect her. It would protect her from trouble by identifying her with 
with that with his workers, and then it would also give her an advantage. She would have the first first dibs on the gleanings. So he elevates her sex. Third, he offers her safety and protection. Verse nine: Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Now it was common for the, the, the reapers to forcibly deal with kind of over-enthusiastic gleaners. So if the, the harvesters are working down the row and the gleaners are behind, well, sometimes the gleaners would get up a little too close and they, the line between gleaning and reaping is kind of crossed. And so they would deal roughly with those, those gleaners. And he says, I, I've urged the young men, do, don't hurt, don't bother you, don't touch you. She has this protected status, but it gets even better. She has physical provision. Verse 9, And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now, she is a foreigner and she is a woman. They are the ones who go to the well and draw water for Israelite men. But here, you realize what she's, what she's been told by Boaz? She said, you, you drink water drawn by Israelite men. By my young men. This is incredible. It's like he's showing her around the office and say, staff lounge, it's yours. I don't care that you don't work here. Use it, get anything you want out of the fridge. You have, you have access. So what's Ruth's response to this kindness? Verse 10, And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why? Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? See how she even views herself. She, the word she uses for foreigner here isn't just like sojourner. This is the lowest of the low. Foreigner in this sense has really no privileges. You're, you're cut off, you're outside, you're unclean. She, she, has, she has no expectations of help and yet she's been given all of this generous help. Why? So you begin to hear a new song here. We were talking, how we were talking about last week, the blues, the lament psalms. This is what we've been singing in chapter 1. And here the tune begins to change. It's a little brighter sound. The minor chords give way to majors. It's, just, it's faint, but it's growing louder. So Boaz answers Ruth's question. She says, why have I found favor in your sight? Well, he tells her. Verse 11. It's because of all. All that you have done for your mother-in-law, Naomi, since the death of, her, of your husband, and has been, it's all been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord will repay you for all that you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Again, Boaz already knew about Ruth, by reputation, but he didn't know her by sight. And again, this is the first connection. That's the one. He, 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 her loyalty to Naomi impressed him. And not just that, that but she gave up her family. She gave up, gave up her native land and her gods and her people and the security of all that was familiar. And, and, and <coughs> he gave up all, she gave up all of that to follow Naomi's God. To be with Naomi's people and Naomi's land. And he says, the Lord repay you. Not I will repay you. But he looks to God as the great paymaster. And he will, he will settle accounts. He will give a full reward from, for you for this sacrifice. But again, it's not just about horizontal loyalty to Naomi that impresses her. It's that fact that she's taken refuge in the Lord. 
He says, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is why Eric read Psalm 91 earlier. He pictures Ruth as this defenseless young bird who's, who's taking refuge under the strong and warm and powerful and protective wings of God. And, and so this is the image. It's, you've taken refuge not just under God in general, but under the Lord, under Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. So how, how will the Lord pay her wage? That's the question that's going to be kind of lingering at the end of this chapter. Now the ironic twist that is going to come, and that the writer is anticipating here, is that Boaz is going to be, be the answer to his own prayer. Have you seen God do that in your own life? You pray for a work, you pray for a need, and then before you know it, you, are, you find that God is leading you to be the answer to your own prayer. And, and he, he does this. Ruth replies, verse 13, and she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. She went out the morning asking that God would find, that she would be able to find favor in some farmer's eyes. And says, I found it. And she refers to him as Lord. I thought, oh, worship. That's just a courteous expression, respect. She's maintaining appropriate distance at this point. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. I mean, you can, you can only imagine the anxieties and the fears that gripped Ruth as she went out into the field that morning. This new place, new land, new people, everything's unfamiliar, different customs. And she's going out, but she, she's destitute, so she has no other option. So she goes out, not sure how she's going to be received, probably fearing at least slander, if not physical abuse. But her fears are relieved through the kindness of Boaz. And she makes note of that here. You've comforted me. Spoken kindly to me. Something I never expected. But it gets even better. Verse 14, in the mealtime, Boaz said to her, so the, all the workers gathered with Boaz and his family and his friends and these fellow workers stopping for an afternoon meal. And he calls, come, come here. Eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers on equal ground. And he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. What a picture. What a meteoric rise she has had. She's gone from basically being just above pond scum as this foreign widow to being this kind of favored gleaner, to now she's, it's like she's in Boaz's inner circle, one of the leading men in Israel. He's, she's in his, and this is in one day, part of one day. She is a long way from Moab now. And, and, and yet, there's still this, this tension that she's still not sitting by Boaz. She's sitting with the reapers, but she's served by him. She gets a hot meal. A big meal. That's probably the most she's eaten, the best she's eaten in months, if not years. She's satisfied. She has some left. She stuffs it in her pockets, we'll find out, and takes some to Naomi, whatever's was left. So lunchtime passes. Work resumes. Verse 15, when she, rose to gl- when she rose to glean after eating, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. 
So what happened was the, the men would come and would cut the grain and they would kind of make it in piles and, and they would, you know, pile up with near, next to the standing grade. The women would come, bind up the piles and then take them out. And so you would have these piles. Well, they, they would not allow gleaners to get in there in the midst of those piles. I mean, that's just easy picking, you know. It would be easy to steal. And so they would keep them out of, until the bundles were picked up, that's when the gleaners could come in and get what remained. But he says, no, you can, you can work among the piles. It's fine. And, and they cannot reproach you. They can't stop you. They can't say anything to you. But it's more than that. It goes even further. Verse 16, and also, he tells his workers, pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. He, he, he wants to make sure she goes home with plenty. And so he tells his workers, just occasionally pull out a handful, leave it. Give it to her. This is unheard of behavior. This goes way beyond the provision that the law made. This is not at all expected. What is behind Boaz's unusual interest in this foreigner? Is it simply because he's infatuated with her? Or he's fallen in love with this young Moabite woman? Is he acting out of family devotion? Does he... Realize that connection? I don't know. <laughs> Whatever the case, this, this kindness from Boaz has opened up this relationship between the two of them. And the, it's not yet resolved, but it, it leaves us anticipating. And that brings us to the third movement, verse 17 to 23. Real quick. We have this hopeful redemption. It's hopeful redemption. So verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening, a long day's work, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, I know you know what an ephah is, right? Uh, you use that all the time in the kitchen, I'm sure. Now, ephah is, it's about six gallons of barley. So a big five-gallon bucket, weighed about 30 pounds of barley. So this is this is an astonishing amount for a gleaner in a day's work. This is... Two or three weeks worth of gleaning in one day, basically. And so she took it up and went into the city. So scene change now. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over, left over after being satisfied. Gave her a doggy bag here and said, eat up. Now, again, I just picture this scene. Just use my imagination here. I imagine Naomi just fidgeting all day. Going to the door often, waiting. When's she going to be home? It's getting late. Oh, how's it going? You know, not, she's, she's not sure how she's going to be treated. If she'll have any success, if she'll find favor in anybody's eyes. She's been out of Bethlehem and Judah for a long time. She doesn't know what the climate is and who, who people are. And so, 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 so as she, though, she sees Naomi coming back, or sees Ruth coming back, this huge amount of grain, she's just dumbfounded. And her mother-in-law said to her, verse 19, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? And, and you could just see the hastiness and the excitement and, and these questions, kind of rapid fire, and she doesn't even give Ruth a chance to respond before she breaks out into this benedictory, this benediction, this blessing upon this unnamed benefactor. She says, Blessed is he, blessed be the man who took notice of you. Verse 19, so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the, man, the man's name with whom I work today is, yeah, this pregnant pause, Boaz. 
And with that word, the whole trajectory of the story just changed. The whole course of, of this narrative just shifted. This, 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 this name, this man is, is now part of Naomi's world and it's part of the story and, and the rest of Ruth will now follow a different course because of it. Verse 20, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness is not forsaken, the living or the dead. Naomi, Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours. And what I mean is, He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. He's one of our redeemers. What excited Naomi most in the end was not the grain. It wasn't the doggy bag. What excited her the most was, was the name. It was who this man was. He is, he is a close relative. He is one of our redeemers. This is a technical word that's going to be key for the rest of Ruth. It's the little word goel in Hebrew. Kinsman Redeemer. We'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. But uh, from Israelite family law, the, the, the Goel, this, this person, was God's means of providing help for needy family members. So, so if you had a widow, it would be destitute. This was the person, this close relative, would be one who would come and provide for their needs, who would, who would pay off debts and make restitution and purchase property for them, and if necessary, even marry them and raise up sons, raise up offspring for them. And so this, this changes things. This guy Boaz is not just this good-hearted Israelite farmer now. No, he is... He is one of our redeemers. Verse 21, Ruth the Moabite said, and she elaborates more. Besides, in addition, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Verbal, physical, Racial insults, rough treatment. He's given some stern motherly advice here. <laughs> but Ruth goes back to work in the fields. Verse 23, the narrator steps in, just like he did at the end of chapter 1. He kind of take a break from the dialogue, and the, the narrator comes in and closes things out. He says, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley, har- barley and wheat harvest, about seven weeks, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now we can assume that she saw Boaz repeatedly over that time period. And so they probably became better acquainted with one another. Uh, but then harvest came and harvest went. And the, the, the widows are, are full and their pantry is full and they have, they're stocked up for, for uh, the summer. But, but, but Ruth remains with Naomi and by, by implication she probably lost contact with Boaz. And so there's this unsettled issue. We've seen God do a lot in chapter 2, but we're still, still two widows living in a house with no, no long-term plan of provision. Still, still bleak in a lot of ways. There's loose ends. Seed, seed, plots, plot seeds have been planted in this chapter, but they haven't come to fruition yet. So, this is like you're gonna have to come back for the rest of the story next week. Alright? The writer is, is skilled at this. He's a shrewd writer and he keeps us, keeps us in it. Um, let, me just, let me just make a couple applications and we just have a couple minutes so I, I, I'm going to have to abbreviate this. But 
I said at the beginning, God is skilled at making beauty from ashes. And that's, that's what we're seeing throughout this story. And, and that, that helps us to take courage knowing that, knowing that God may be using dark clouds of, of tragedy in your life, but He's going to bring out of that showers of nourishing blessing. He is able and He is active in doing that. So what, what can we learn from this split screen that we've seen in chapter 2 of Ruth. For, for, from knowing that what we see and what we feel and what we experience and the way things seem to be, there's, there's more to the story. God is doing more. What can we learn from seeing that? Second, first thing I would say, avoid apathy. Avoid apathy. To, to say, talk about the doctrine of providence, it shouldn't encourage us to be idle or lazy, just passively waiting on God to bring about fixed outcomes. That's not it. That's not what you see. That's not how it works. God sovereignly and providentially works through human actions and decisions. They're not robots. There was a conscious decision on Ruth's part to get out there and work in the field. There was, there was, there was, she was making decisions. She was, Boaz was making choices and was showing kindness and inquiring. And so there, there's, there's human action. If I try to live off of a diet of Dr. Pepper and donuts and potato chips, which sounds awfully good, but if I, if I do that, there will be consequences. And you'll be able to see that transformation right before your eyes. And um, If I drive like a madman, I am, I, it, I am more likely to kill or be killed in an, in an auto accident. So, so, there are, so, it's, so God has ordained that our actions do have effects. So, so don't become slothful. Don't become slothful in evangelism. Just say, well, if God saves, He's going to save who He wants to save. No. That is not what Scripture teaches. You, you get active. God brings people across your path. You have a responsibility to talk to them, to point them to Jesus Christ and the mercy store that awaits Him. Show them Christ. And, and in prayer, you say, well, God's going to do what He wants anyway. No, that's not it. You, you plead with God. You get hold of Him. You persevere in prayer. You lay hold of Him and don't let go until He answers. That's the attitude that we take in prayer. And so there, so don't, don't become apathetic. Second, don't trust in luck or chance. Uh, you probably don't as a worldview. You don't think I'm, I'm, this is not where I go, but, but, but you can, we can have our versions of that, our sanitized, Christianized versions of this. If you, and, and so do you sometimes think of, of, of luck or chance or fortune as causing certain events in your life, good or bad? And if you think like that, does that raise or lower your anxiety level about the future? Be honest. Now, now, now think about events that you've attributed to luck or, again, good or bad in the past. And now put those through the, through the lens of, of God's providence. He's working things out. How does that change your perspective on your circumstances? It should. Now, I'm not telling you to be crazy about this. If you're playing basketball in the driveway and your son says to you, Dad, because it is, he says, that was a lucky shot. Because it probably was. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not asking you to call the pastor and, and threaten church discipline because he said the L word or something like that. That's not it. But just, just thinking that, that, that there's impersonal chance is what's driving life. No. And with that, avoid superstition. I, I know we can, you, there are those, you may have rituals, you sports fans, I know you weirdos got these strange things that you do and, and you're convinced, but it, it can control your life. And again, I say, do those actions, those thoughts, those rituals increase or decrease your trust in God? Third, 
it's just a general lesson from this chapter, and it's, but it's an important one. Be a man or woman of genuine godly piety. I know piety, that's not a word we use. That's an old-fashioned word right there. But, we're, but what we're saying is, is we often uphold the more eccentric, outspoken, boisterous models of faith, and those are the guys we lift up. But Ruth and Boaz was this quiet, sincere devotion to God. It's, they're changed by the covenant faithfulness of God shows up in how they think and talk and speak and, and, and act, hard work and patience and kindness, and compassion and respect and humility and perseverance and courage and faithfulness and prudence and self-sacrifice. And then finally, and this is a good lead up to what we're about to sing and to what's coming on Thursday. Breathe out thanks to God. Just let, let Thanksgiving be something that just comes out of you Understanding, understanding the split screen of life. That there is another screen that we don't see. It, it allows us to, as Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. If all, if we think this is the only screen we have, the little street level view and, and this, you know, this tragedy that's right in our face, if we think this is it, then it'll be, that, that will sound like a fanciful dream. That's a, that's a unicorn. There's no way you can, can ever find that. And to give thanks in all circumstances. But if you say, God's got a screen. He's got a purpose. He's got a story. He's working. And this fits. Somehow. I don't know. But I can give thanks. Thank Him for everything. Think of five good things that have happened to you today. This morning. Have you, have you, have you thanked Him for any of those things? So let, let, let be primed for not just a day of thanksgiving, but a life of thanksgiving to God and His goodness. This is what providence should do. It's not focused on the, the dark stuff necessarily. It's, it's saying God is working even through this hard stuff and He's, he's accomplishing much. Well, let me pray and then we're going to sing. We're going to sing of 10,000 reasons that we know to give thanks and that's because we, and that's just from seeing one side of the split screen. That's just from our perspective. We can think of 10,000 or 100,000 reasons. If we saw God's side, we'd have a billion, bazillion, I don't even know, infinity. It would never end. The, the potential uh, reasons and causes of thanksgiving to God and to bless the Lord, but but we'll do our best with the 10,000 that come to mind instantly, right? All right, team, come on up. You go ahead and come on up as I pray. I, we, we, have, uh, we want to sing, and then, and then we have an opportunity to hear our brother Ken Turner is here, the Gideon ministry, and so he's going to come and share, and there will be a video after that. And, and uh, so looking forward to that. Let's pray. Father, would you help us, God, to... Uh, sing now with our tongues in response to the goodness that we see, uh, not just in our lives, but the, the, the confidence we have that in all things, God, you are working good and for your glory. And so um, whatever, again, whether, as Eric was reminding us, whether we, we're coasting in off the mountaintop this morning or whether we've drew us, draw, dragged our bodies in here, coming from the valley, God, may we be able to stand and sing with full hearts and Loud voices, Lord, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in within me. Bless His holy name. So help us and give us, give us strength to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.